there is an element of professional judgment to it. There is, and, and that professional judgment stems from you know thirty odd years of being a chartered accountant. What do you think is the value of that? This brings us back to the age-old problem that if you get a single joint expert report and the expert says, oh, I've used this indices and that indices, and, you know, there are, there are, as Peter says, a number, and some experts will list them all and then still say, uh, and none of them have any companies that are like this one, and none of them are of the size or of the exact nature, but I say the multiplier should be 5.5, and if you ask the, the question, we all know that the expert says, how dare you, I'm the expert, it's 5.5. Hello, and welcome to the Resolution podcast. This month, we are joined by Peter Smith from Qantas Forensic Accountants and Robert Cole from Broadway House Chambers in order to discuss business accounts. Before we get going, perhaps each of you could tell us a little bit about your background and why you are qualified to assist us with this vexed question. Robert, could you go first? Yeah, hi. So uh, I'm Robert Cole, as you've said. I'm from Broadway House Chambers. I happen to be the head of the family team there. Um, and um, I come to this talk after 32 years at the bar, last 20 years as specialist in financial remedy. Um, but before I started at the bar, um, for reasons I won't bore you with, I actually worked in accountancy. It was that or being a lion tamer, and I thought accountancy was more fun. But I uh, I, I had uh, a year at a firm called Jolliffe Cork in Wakefield, and then two years at a firm called Story Hayward in the insolvency department, now known as BDOs. Both of those, one was just auditing, but the insolvency stuff very much required me to look into why businesses have gone wrong, you know, try to hunt down money, uh, decide whether the directors had been uh, putting stuff in their own pocket rather than pay their creditors and so on and so forth. So that was useful, albeit it's a long time ago, as a way in which I therefore was, became, over those three years, comfortable in uh, dealing with accounts. And I brought that into my practice, which ultimately led to me deciding to specialise in financial remedy. And for a number of years, therefore, now I've been working in that field, but obviously a lot of the time having to deal with corporate structures, et cetera, et cetera, and all the things that flow, flow from them. So hopefully it's that which I'm bringing to this podcast to help the listeners understand a few more of the matters that might be pertinent. And Peter? Thanks, Anita. Yes, Peter Smith. Um, I have a chartered accountancy practice um, based in the northeast of England, albeit my work uh, spans the whole of the UK and even across to the Channel Isles on some occasions. So I carry out a lot of single joint expert appointments uh, in financial remedy matters. I also still do some commercial litigation dispute work uh, and a few other little niche areas of forensic accountancy. But the lion's share of my work these days is acting either as a single joint expert or as a shadow expert in financial remedy matters. In terms of experience, almost the flip side to Robert. So I trained um, in Leeds and I worked for Deloitte, as they are now for a long time in their forensic accounts department. And then when I moved up to the northeast with Deloitte's, 
I did more and more of this type of work and eventually ended up working for a firm of lawyers, Dickinson Dees, which was a big firm up in the northeast, which are now Wombleborne Dickinson. Worked there for three and a half years, very closely with the family people or family team and uh, with the commercial litigators as well, and decided that I might perhaps try and have a go on my own. And that was 20 years ago and uh, never looked back, I suppose. So that's what I do principally, working, as I say, um, in all areas of business, farms, a lot of those in the northeast, but um, any number of businesses I've valued over the years as a, as a single joint expert and and looked at other um, areas as well, liquidity, taxation, all those sort of things. So that's that's how I come to it. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, the podcast. Okay. All right. Well, it sounds like you're the perfect people to shine a light on this topic for us. So let me start then with a question for you, Peter, if I may. What is it that we should be looking out for when we get a set of accounts? Usually, obviously, it's the start of a financial remedy case. And and what is it we should be looking out for as a as a red flag and to say, look, maybe these accounts aren't revealing the true picture? Mm. Well, one set of accounts in isolation aren't really going to help you a great deal. I think what you need to do and what I always do um, in any appointment is set out the financial results of a business over the last, say, four or five years to look at historic trends because in all the years I've been doing this, I'm yet, I think, to come across anybody who, at the time we reach uh, family proceedings, say that their business is about to take off. Um, more often than not, it's about to fall off the edge of a cliff. Um, all the best years are behind it. Uh, we roll out, we've had COVID, we've had Brexit, we've had recessions, we've had runs on the bank, and that's just over the last so, 10 years or so. So I think it's important to put the last four or five years together to see any trends. Uh, and in particular, once we get years uh, where the parties have separated or there's clearly been issues in the marriage, uh, to then look quite closely at what may have happened. And, and, and what you tend to find, or what I always look for, is um, three things. Um have revenues, sales, turnover gone down, um, have gross profit margins gone down, and have costs and overheads gone up, because all those three will ultimately affect the bottom line of profits uh, and reduce those. So it's important to look at things like provisions that are made, writing off bad debts, writing down stock, writing down assets, all the things uh, that get thrown in to try and uh, reduce profitability and um support an argument that the best days of the company are behind it. Um, so that's what I tend to look at to start with. So, And in particular, when you put that last year or those years where the parties uh, have um, you know, hit choppy waters in their marriage, you know, are there red flags in there? So in isolation, you might not see those red flags. But once you um, look at a trend, then they usually stand out like a sore thumb. Is that what you look for, Robert? Yeah. Without wanting to be too um, particular, if you like, you would look at there are some reasons why trading performance will legitimately go wrong. Uh, you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you've got a certain turnover and we all know about the cost of living crisis and increase in your costs of sales, then your profit is going to reduce. So you need to make sure you don't get overly exercised. But I agree with Peter, the the thing to look for are strange movements on the on the profit loss account, particularly. On top of that, have a look at 
what on the balance sheet, what fixed assets there are, because if you've got property or assets that are there and they appear to be constant on a couple of years of accounts, then if it's property, has it increased in value? When was it last valued, etc.? What you've got to remember is you are deciding whether you're going to ask for an expert from the court. So you, you want to take an overview anyway on the accounts about whether there's enough trading activity for, and Peter on the doubt explain in a moment, an EBITDA-based uh, enterprise value, equity value, or whether, depending on the nature of the business, there also appear to be assets which can add to surplus assets to a value. So you're looking for all those elements as well as the kind of activity Peter's talking about. And another one that sometimes is worthwhile looking at it's whether there's more than one limited company. In other words, has somebody got a number of limited companies? And um, just as an aside, and Peter will be able to explain this further, but, you know, are all the year ends the same time? Because if you've got different year ends, a phrase, I, I don't know if it's one that is regularly used, but um, somebody once said to me, is somebody potentially helicoptering assets from one to another limited company? So it never shows on the balance sheet, because with that, let's not forget, auditing is, is almost a rare creature now because you need to have turnover over 10.2 million and, and or assets under 5 million or 50 employees. Then a lot of companies, their accounts aren't checked. And of course, you could move assets from one company to another with different year ends. And they, if accumulated over a sufficient period of time, will never show on the actual annual accounts. So it's again... Maybe I'm creating a spectre that isn't too uh, regular or common, but it's something that, again, you might just think, oh, that seems a bit strange. In the same way that when one is dealing with the husband and wife and they've got 20 bank accounts for no apparent reason, it always causes you to wonder what the heck's going on. So, you know, those are the kinds of things I agree with Peter. It's, it's about strange movements and so on and so forth. But those are some other things that might cause you to uh, want to have a look and to delve a bit further and to be suspicious. And then in terms of when, it, it's never an easy sale, is it, telling your client, well, you're, you're already paying for an expensive lawyer, but we also need to get somebody else in to help us out here. So, you know, is, is there a rule of thumb for the situations in which you need, you, you decide that you need, you need some help? I mean, I think we're probably at the, expert on your side helping you to decipher whether whether there's an issue whether there are questions to raise in a questionnaire type of thing i mean is that something we should be doing routinely where we see see a business uh, well i'll deal with it first um i know that uh there are instances if if the business or the assets are sufficient where one might bring in a shadow accountant and i know peter does that work as well uh, rather than just producing a single joint expert forensic report but we've always got to have an eye to the costs uh, in these things. And uh, I am cautious about bringing somebody too soon. That said, equally, you know, if the accounts or if you've had an attempt at pre-action disclosure and what you seem to be getting is as clear as mud, then you may think that you've got to go sooner rather than later. Or you may want to bring a, a forensic accountant in. I mean, we all know the rules are supposed to require us at first directions appointment to have determined whether we need it. But there will be instances, Simon, where I will say to a client, let's get a detailed questionnaire answered, notwithstanding the four page 
limitation now, but let's get a detailed questionnaire answered and flag up to the court that we'd like answers before we go to the extent of, of the cost of a report. Um, but if the sense, if you've tried pre-action and you, you're concerned that the other party isn't being upfront about what's going on with the business or, or there are things going on, then maybe it's necessary. Let's not forget one final comment I'll make. When we've talked about looking at the accounts, if the husband's driving around in a Ferrari and he just bought his wife some fantastic expensive handbags the year before they separated, but he says his business has a turnover and more importantly, a profit of £40,000 a year and is worth nothing, then lifestyle might suggest there's something else going on in the account. So, you know, you don't always need to be that restricted in your approach. But yeah, so I think if that hopefully answers the question, and maybe Peter's got more to say as to when he feels he should be brought in. Do you find those sort of lifestyle observations, though, get up the nose of, of judges, Robert, just to cut over before we go to Peter, do you find those sort of, you know, that disparity of lifestyle compared to the business accounts, do you, do you find that an easy sell? Yeah, well, yes, in this sense, as long as it's, as long as, I mean, to some extent, their own for me with chapels that appear to have Van Goghs on them or something. I'm being extreme, but, you know, with, with a, a very good standard of living. Uh, clearly, you know, one party that's trying to say we don't have anything is going to play down the standard of living and the other party may exaggerate it. But if they've funded private education, if they happen to have very nice cars and can afford, you know, if if let's say the husband has is the shareholder for the instance of, of this conversation, is driving around in a in a ninety thousand pounds top of the range Range Rover with eighty four thousand pounds of finance against it, and and his apparent income and profitability is as low as I've said earlier at forty grand, then how has he managed to get that car? So one has to start to summarise and emphasise the point alongside other things that might give reason for concern, it's going to help, is all I'm saying. Again, that in itself might not be enough, but it's about building the whole picture at First Direction's appointment. So, Peter, when when do you wish you were called in? Do you, do, you, do you often look and think, oh, my word, if I'd seen this six months ago, we'd be in a very different place now? No, Simon, not really. I think it depends on the firm's instructing you. Some uh, are very proactive and uh, will come to me pretty early on and say, we've got uh, a couple and uh, they've got five or six different companies and we can't really make head and a tail of it. We've got a questionnaire to draft. Can you help us? And sometimes I may only look at something for two or three hours just to help unravel five or six different sets of accounts and, and just work out what needs to be asked in relation to all of them sometimes there's interconnection between them other times they're mutually exclusive but that does seem to help a lot and, and another thing um, I think some firms are very good at uh, or when they come to me are saying we need to act now because we don't want to give um, let's just take about a bit like what Robert's just said, you know, it's the husband who's controlling the purse strings and, and controlling the company. We don't want the, the husband to give the husband the opportunity to uh, start to salt things away or hide assets or engineer the accounts of the company so that they show that it's dropped off the edge of a cliff. Um, so we want to get in early before we do that. So um, lots are very good. I mean, and the difficulty you've got in, in some ways, it's a bit easy now, but in some ways um, you're often dealing with sets of accounts 
that can be 12, 18 months old because that's the last ones they've got. So, and particularly when you had COVID, you, you know, it was very difficult to value businesses on accounts that finished at the end of 2019. They didn't um, paint a picture uh, of anything like that happened in uh, 2020, Um So you've got to be careful. But what, one thing that is quite good that has helped me enormously, and, and I do often put in the questionnaires, is uh, with the advent of uh, good accounting software, the Sages, the Zeros of this world, most decent sized companies that that, that sort of uh, land on their desks do have this sort of accounting software and at the tap of a button can print off profit and loss accounts and management accounts and balance sheets um, you know that are up to date so that helps enormously and I, I always ask for that information yeah can I just say in that respect another useful question sometimes and it doesn't give a full picture but because of the change in uh, VAT, uh, having to use the portal to actually pay one's VAT, that does mean that they will have an electronic form at least showing their outputs and inputs, which uh, I'm now you're going into a different phrase for income and outgoings, but the same thing if you know what I mean. And that in itself might at least give you an idea of the trading performance if your if the accounts that they claim exist are too historical. So. You know, again, it's something else just to think about putting in. Let's not forget the advantage of a detailed questionnaire can be the very point that Peter said, albeit don't get too carried away. Uh, there was one firm I won't name that would be forever using their own in-house forensic accountant, not the firm Peter worked for. And one would get a 30-page questionnaire, which this individual had spent hours and hours going through every last thing. And of course, judges aren't going to play ball with that. And we know about the practice directions now with regards to limiting questionnaires. But if you can show enough questions with regards to the company or, or the business and put that in a questionnaire, then sometimes it can actually be used as a basis to say, so let's have a single joint expert because those questions can be considered and addressed by the expert and dealt with if the expert thinks it, it, it will inform uh, the valuation or the other issues that you might want to address in an expert report. So sometimes it can be used that way to help. So you almost flag up in your questionnaire without going into cross-examination. And again, I don't, I don't want to get on a high horse about that, but flag up some of the points that might be the reasons why you think an expert is necessary. Um, so it can be used that way as well, if that's a useful tip for those listening. I mean, it's certainly a useful tip for me. I'm busy writing all of this down. So the other thing that vexes me when you're at that first appointment about and you're considering, you know, SJE and you've got your all your questions. And then the other side, again, let's say for the, the husband's side is saying, well, look, hang on, we've got this this letter from the business accountant. And, you know, why do you need something more? And well, shouldn't we have the right to be able to say if that valuation turns out to be right at the end of the day, we should be able to recoup our costs from having to pay towards this SJE? And you're thinking, oh, how do I know? So so that's my question. How do you know if what you have from the business accountant is 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 something of, of value in your proceedings? Let, let's go to you first, Peter, again. Um, well, I, I do see quite a lot of valuations coming from... Um... The company's own accountants have actually been looking at one today and uh, pulling it apart. I suppose uh, there are times when uh, they are perfectly acceptable and perfectly reliable. Uh, and the situations where I find them to be most uh, 
uh, reliable is where you've got a business that really is only the value of its assets. So a farm, uh, a property investment business. So providing you've got um, valuations of the assets, whether it be the property, the land, the livestock, the plant and equipment, you can just parachute parachute those into uh, a set of accounts. Um, And so it's not that tricky. It's the ones where... uh, a degree of judgment needs to be exercised in terms of what's the future profitability of the business, what profit multiple would you apply? And speaking generally, who pays the fees year in, year out of the company accountants? Well, it's the director shareholder that they're acting for. So I'm not saying they all pay lip service to uh, what they're told, but I think you've got to look at them uh, with a certain degree of scepticism as to uh, what they're saying. And some of them make no sense whatsoever. I mean, I, I had one uh, not so long ago where, um, just, just to use round numbers, um, a business had assets of a million pounds and they valued it at something like half a million pounds on an earnings basis, didn't look at didn't look at the assets. And, and so you've got a business that, that was you know, had strong turnover, effectively having what's called negative goodwill. And that, you know, it, it was far, it was worth less than what it's bricks and mortar and it, and it had in the bank was. So that makes no sense at all. And, and I think one thing I always try and do um, when when I do a single joint expert report or even a shadow one is, is just sometimes just stand back and, and have a little bit of a common sense check and say, you know, would a rational businessman, rational investor, pay that sort of price for that business. And there's lots of factors that you've got to uh, put into the pot, you know, the economy, the reliance on the main director shareholders, uh, lots of things. But I think sometimes you do uh, need to just stand back and, and have a little sort of look. Um, and maybe sometimes, you, you know, you do all your calculations and and, and leave it overnight. I, I think sometimes a lot of us do our best thinking uh, when we're about to doze off to sleep and then come back to it. And, and any number of times I thought, oh, I need to think about this and I need to apply that and I need to adjust for that. So, um, yeah, I, I think just, a little, you know, you need a little bit of common sense. Whereas uh, getting back to the point, a lot of the valuations by the company accountants um, have just uh, paid lip service to what they've been told and, and, and really in commercial reality might not make an awful lot of sense. And does does every business need to be valued? I mean, there's the golden goose, isn't there? There's, there's the business that provides one of the, one or both, but one, let's say one of the spouses with an income stream. It, not, not every business is set up with a view to a sale. Um, you know, a chartered surveyor, somebody might 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 well be in partnership with with two or three others but the plan is that they work until they until they retire they're not they're not gearing up for a sale is is that something that um you've got any tips about how to sort of differentiate between between those two scenarios well shall i just um uh, well i'll deal with that and then i'll come back to a couple of the points that anita asked uh, peter to deal with but um just to remind the listeners about V&V, which was the optician's uh, um, company, Coleridge. Uh, I can't remember the, the, the citations, so I apologise for that, but I'm sure it can be provided. But V&V, husband owns opticians, sole trader, 
and Coleridge, wife was asking for a valuation. Coleridge said, no, you know, it's his business, it's him. And when he sells it, that's it. I mean, the risk there, of course, if you are the owner of the business is Coleridge then went on to give the wife 40 percent of the net profits because um, that, whether that authority would fit in with the current thinking about earnings and so on and so forth. But of course, we're then into that difficult situation where that might alternatively produce an unfair result. But I have successfully run arguments in front of judges uh, where it is in essence a sole trader and albeit with through a corporate entity and to some extent therefore valuing that individual's efforts or you know with a secretary and so on and so forth is is um, not or doesn't tend to lend itself the nature of the business doesn't tend to lend itself to something that a third party would um, purchase to get back to the point about um, what do you do about an accountant's report from the owner of the of the business, um, there are a couple of points. Peter's already suggested, firstly, uh, even if it looks like at face value, it seems to be using legitimate means of valuation. Um, and, uh, of course, the instance he gave there of it being in neg negative uh, goodwill well, of course, it's not just what would a purchaser pay, what would the owner really sell for? You've got a million pounds building. You're not going to flog your business, including the building, for half a million, for example. But um, if let's say that there aren't that many red flags, um, as Peter says, the, the fact of the matter is, however, that if uh, there appears to be some value, the court's still got to ensure that the valuation is independent. Uh, PD. 25D talks about the need for wherever possible uh, single joint experts should be applied. And we will all have uh, Mostyn's uh, growlings from J&J, &J, which I think was in 2014, where there was a plethora of experts. Uh, and that was because the husband had come along in the first instance. It was a Manchester case, um, but come along in the first instance with a very detailed report and the judge at first instance uh, at the FDI had, had allowed the husband to rely on his report and then given permission to the wife to get a separate report. So as Mostyn said in J&J, there's nothing wrong with a two or three page analysis as to inform the husband's valuation of his business. But one still has to take a step back, you know, and if if the multiplier, uh, if if. <laughs> If the figures are without any adjustments and we know the husband only draws £20,000 a year, so the profit figures look wrong because he also says in his full me he's the hardest working chap ever. So a director would probably be paid £75,000, for example. Then you already know the profit figures are going to be slightly wrong. Now, that would help the husband because it would be, mean there's lower profits. But if then the multipliers too, when you're thinking, well, hold on, this seems to be a successful trading business. I know it's always a, a very subjective, though the experts always say they know the correct answer. Don't you, Peter? Anyway. In a range. <laughs> yes. That, well, uh, and there will be indices. If it looks like the multiplier looks too low, if it looks like, you know, there's no recognition of what appear to be surplus assets, if it looks like, they have not really done an analysis, then you're always going to be able to say, look, this comes from the accountant. And as Peter's in indicated, the accountant's going to produce what his client wants him to produce. And and we all know we'll put, a, you know, a, a lower figure if at all possible. So 
court's got to be cautious, I think. If it's felt necessary for the husband to produce a detailed report, that in itself suggests there's a reason for that. And that in itself suggests that somebody independently should do the piece of work. So it kind of answers itself to some extent, as well as whatever methodology might have been used. And whether that, you know, if a net asset is used for a trading business, that's not the usual way for a trading business to be uh, valued, unless it looks like the net assets are significant and the trading performance isn't as good. So that would ultimately be the value attributed to it. But um, there it is. I think just just adding to that is it's something I was involved in. It's going back quite a few years now. It's probably well over ten years, maybe fifteen years ago, where one of the big firms of chartered accountants, and this is really before single joint experts um, came to the fore, and you had party appointed experts, uh, and it was one of the big firms. Uh, they were the auditors. So it was a substantial business. They were the auditors of the business, but also did the share valuation, and they made all manner of adjustments. The people in the uh, forensic accountancy department to it. And I was on the other side, so I got um, in one of the big firms in, in one of their ivory towers down in London, and, and, and little old me in my office up in Northumberland, uh, locking horns. And they were putting through some pretty meaty adjustments. You know, we're talking seven-figure adjustments. And I, and I sort of said, well, hang on, um, you're doing this, but you audit it, and your auditors haven't made any adjustments for these at all, what are called impairment adjustments to the value of assets. I said, so... so um, your auditors have signed it off. The directors have signed it off not that long ago. Yet you, when you come to this for the div um, divorce and, and valuing the business, are making all manner of adjustments uh, to it. And, and, and to the value of um, the shareholding, it made something like five or six million pounds worth of difference, which obviously is pretty material. Um, and in the end, um, they got booted off the case because uh, they obviously hadn't, each department hadn't spoken to each other. They, the forensic department had produced this in isolation, but the audit department had, had barked up a different tree. So um, they were made to look fools. And, and that, you know, that, that's a really good example, I always thought, of, of why you shouldn't uh, use the same firm because they ended up not in a great place uh, in, in, in both the forensic side. And I actually think they lost the audit because the director was so cross with what had happened. I mean, I will say that if you've got a report from the other side and you've had enough time to consider it, then that might be an instance. And it looks like it's a detailed piece of work. And, and you know, hopefully all your listeners have come across enough expert reports to at least have an idea about what to expect and what to see. You know, there's nobody listening needs to have word EBITDA explained as to what it actually stands for as an acronym as such but but if it looks like it's okay well that might be an instance where you actually go to some shadow and say can we just can you just cash your eye over this is it so wide of the mark and I've actually I will say on an instance asked solicitors to ask on one more than one instance and I'm not saying I only use Peter but for example I remember an instance where I said look we've got this valuation by the the uh, fam the uh, uh, husband's family business uh, by their accountants, send it off to Peter and let's see if he thinks it's okay. And he came back and said, well, you know, there might be one or two bits I'd do differently, but it's there or thereabouts. Well, then, then it, in those instances, one might think, okay, that's fine. It's just silly things that, that, as Peter's mentioned, that happen. Or even, you know, if it is a family business, and you might want to ask about this later, but, you know, they decide to apply a significant minority discount when clearly it's 
they're also running a generational family business argument. Well, you can't have it both ways. And that means they're automatically trying to reduce the value. Well, that would be something that you'd be able to say to a judge, come on, you can't really rely on this. It's not fair. Uh, one thing, one thing that um, just to pick up on what Robert said there, and and they, you know they do cross my desk quite a lot. Is is your sort of one man band business, uh, you know, supported by a secretary, let's say a financial advisor, for example, or an insurance broker, uh, and they may well be in their fifties, maybe early sixties, and and you come to the value of the business, and, and their strap line is the business is me. Without me, there is no business. Um, so it does become difficult, and then. Um, you ask them the questions, you know, if I'm acting as a single joint expert and, and pretty much everything that comes back is that um, without this business, there wouldn't be me. And lots of uh, comments that uh, try are aimed at driving down the value of the business. Um, and I've said this on more than one occasion is, would you be telling me the same things if you were looking to retire and sell your business? Because at the end of the day, what are we looking for? We're looking for a capital value to go into a shed of assets. And they should come to the same number. But the narrative that you get uh, in those two scenarios, one divorce and the other retirement, are very, very different. And you've got to weigh those up. Yeah, it is fact specific. The one I last did was a chap who was a grain merchant. So it was him and a telephone. Whereas uh, I remember um, um, having a case uh, in the northeast uh, where the husband was a, a an, in, an insurance broker, and obviously he had repeat custom, but he also had certain uh, contacts and connections which have a sellable value. Not every sole trader through a corporate entity is going to have no market value, but just have a think about the particular nature of what they're doing. Hopefully the gatekeeper, namely the judge, has got enough about them because that's the other vulnerability, and I won't say any more than that, or I might find it difficult <laughs> to practice. Um, but, um, uh, and obviously, uh, you know, hopefully the gatekeeper can, and you can explain why either it should or it shouldn't be valued. And there are, will be instances where it isn't. But quite often, as Peter said, there will be a lot of instances where somebody who is the main force, they always say, don't they, that without them, their business would be nothing. And, uh, that re- le- is less common to be the case than uh, uh, usual. So there it is, yeah. So we've decided we need evaluation. And uh, the next question is what sort of, not what sort of valuation, but what, what sort of methodology is our valuer to apply? Um, do you want to, to walk us through, Peter, the, the sort of... Well, the can I just, either of you? Simon, just before you ask Peter that he's going to give you all the answers let's also not forget that you also just have to pause and look at that question about the balance sheet do you need assets valuing first before i.e if there's a property and it was you know the dark that the um uh accounts say that the directors attribute the value or review it annually and then you've looked at the accounts and it's been the same figure do you need some other assets to be valued before you then go on to get the forensic accountant to then look at the business as a whole, particularly in farming cases or land-based cases or businesses that have got their own premises, etc., you just need to have a thought to that. And 
then your first directions would be sequentially, let's get the map valued and then let's have it. I'm just flagging that up just to remind people. Yeah, maybe really, really helpful. Thank you. Um, anyway, sorry. Um, crack on, Peter. No, no, Robert's absolutely right. And um, you've got to, uh, the mechanism you adopt, there's, there's, there's many ways of looking at which is the um, appropriate basis, um, is you look at the industry sector, uh, You look, as Robert said, you look at the asset base. I think something that is um, very uh, capital intensive. Uh, so I've just valued a large haulage business. So obviously they've got a big fleet of HGVs and trailers and premises. So all those need valuing um, because a lot of the value vests within those. Um, but it goes back to what I said a little bit earlier, whereby um, you lay out the uh, profit and loss accounts of the business for the last three, four, five years, whatever it might be, uh, and look at it. And if profits are thin on the ground, I mean, again, you've got to look at, you know, are there big pension contributions perhaps going through for directors? Do they need adding back? Are there uh, other big one-off items, uh, big, you know, losses on the sale of assets or profits on the sale of assets? So it's very much a case of um, each case has its own uh, methodology. And you look at them all in isolation and um, trading companies, Profitable trading companies tend to be valued on uh, what's known as the earnings basis. So you look at, you work out what um, you think the future maintainable profits of that business are going to be. Um, certain adjustments, you know, are the directors being paid a market rate for the roles they do? Obviously, many family-owned businesses will pay uh, the directors and the spouses sometimes by way of dividends, which don't come off the uh, profits uh, before tax. So you've got to make adjustments for that. But as a, as a real, a, a quite a crude rule of thumb, trading companies, profitable trading companies, tend to be valued on the basis of look at the profits, apply an appropriate multiplier, look at the assets of, it, of the business as well. Are any of them surplus to the day-to-day -day requirements of that business? Uh, whereas ones where you would look at the balance sheet and the net assets would be farming, pretty much all farming cases are uh, net assets. Uh, sometimes plant hire businesses, property investment businesses, property development businesses, the ones where there's a lot of capital uh, coming through. That's that's a crudish rule of thumb. Um, it's not cast in stone by any stretch of the imagination, but that's broadly what you would uh, see. Can we dig into that question of how do you know whether the, the multiplier is right? Can we get into that? <laughs> well, I, I mean, at the end of the day, it goes back to what I said earlier on in that um, when you've finished your work is, is to take a step back and say would a rational investor a rational businessman pay that for that business and one of the drivers to the value of that business is the multiple uh, and there's lots of data out there that experts like myself uh, call upon there's lots of people who seem to contact me on a weekly basis saying they've now got the best profit multiple data uh, around but um, you know that they're all sort of vying for that place in the market so that there is an element of professional judgment to it. There is, and, and that professional judgment stems from, um, you know, thirty odd years of being a chartered accountant. What do you think um, is the value of that? And, and you know, you, you look at what the value of the assets are. You look at what you value it at um, on an earnings basis plus the surplus assets. The difference between the two is is the goodwill, and 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 you know, is it worth that? And you and you're only valuing it on, on the basis of uh, willing buyer, willing seller, not. Uh, a special a special interest buyer so 
if there is a business, let's say a tech business, that may well be the missing piece in a jigsaw uh, for a potential acquirer that, that would give them huge synergistic benefits, they're bound to pay a premium for that. But that's not what we do when it comes to single joint expert. You've just got to value it in isolation. So there's no hard and fast rule, um, professional judgment. Look at the data, of course, but equally just having a feel for it um, is invaluable, I think. Robert? Yeah, I mean, this brings us back to the age-old problem that if you get a report, single joint expert report, it might bring us on to Daniels and Walker in due course, but if you get a single joint expert report and the expert says, oh, I've used this indices and that indices, and, you know, there are, there are, as Peter says, a number, and some experts will list them all and then still say, uh, and none of them have any companies that are like this one, and none of them are of the size or of the exact nature, but I say the multiplier should be 5.5. And if you ask the, the question, we all know that the expert says, how dare you? I'm the expert. It's 5.5. Um, and therein lies the problem. Uh, that might, and I always say the only real way, there are some factual bases that might challenge an expert. Um, but the only real way to actually challenge the expert then might have to be you get somebody else on board who then says, no, that's really not. That's not right. Uh, the niche situation, I, I've got a case at the moment, actually, where it was a Peter didn't do the report, but a evaluation of a tech company. And it came in at a certain figure. And then six months afterwards, um, the figure that the business was sold for was six times the value uh, that uh, the case had settled on. Uh, and we're now having to consider whether the case is going to be reopened. But that's another matter. Um, so there is always that. Let me tie it around this way. This is when the clever advocate, the advocate who knows about this area of law, has to then be looking at instead at, at trying to challenge the expert, but then using, you know, the Martin and Martin Vestig arguments, which is, uh, please judge, bear in mind that that. What Mr. Smith says, he's not saying this is exactly right. Uh, he would be the first to admit that it's something of an art rather than a specific science. So you've got to say inherent with every report is going to be the fact that this that this multiplier appears to be, you know, here's all these tables and there appears to be little rationale other than it's 30 years of experience sticking the, the tail on the donkey there. Then that's when one has to look at it instead. Um because ultimately, in fairness to the expert, they st they have to come up with a, a number. And if the number is too high, the owner of the shares is going to be upset, even though, as Peter says, if they were selling the business, that's what they'd want to achieve. But if the number's too low, then the non-owning spouse is going to say, oh, this is a, a ridiculous result. This, You know, it funds this lifestyle. It's that profitable. He'd never sell it or she'd never sell it for that. Um, so then one has to look at other ways in which one has to uh, try to challenge the report. But ultimately, of course, one then has to just ask the questions of the expert and then get told, how dare you? <laughs> but, uh, there it is. I think, yeah, just picking up on that, I mean, it's often uh, share valuation, business valuation, uh, it's, you know, it's an art and not a science. And I sort of get that. But I've always uh, responded to that by saying, well, it may be an art, but it's not simply, and this is going back to our youths, our childhood, it's not simply painting by numbers, um, where 
reds one, blues two, blacks three. I said, you know, you sorry, want... sorry, sorry. You can edit this out. Oh yes, it is. Just <laughs> say, oh no, it's not. It's still panto season. So edit um, that out. I just had to say, sorry. So, so you can, you know, you can. Sometimes you can go through the whole process and plug all your numbers in, and then you come out with, a, I mean, you come out with a figure, and some, and it goes back to what I said. You know, you stand back and you go, well, that's probably a bit too low, or that looks really high, and then you, you know, you, you sleep on it, uh, and then come back maybe the day or two afterwards and say, well, actually, I'm going to tweak. If I tweak this, tweak this, tweak this, and I think that's probably about right. So there is an there is an element of gut feel to it as well. We have a, a window, don't we, after we get your report to ask you questions. Um, Peter, are the questions that fill you with joy and questions that fill you with dread? Depends who's written them. <laughs> I mean, I know when a set of questions come to me, whether they've been drafted by another forensic accountant or by counsel or by the solicitors or by the company's accountant, you can tell from the style that they're written in and the language that's used. I don't think, I think I'd be no single joint experts likes to get questions. You know, you, you kind of think you've, I was thinking you've done a decent job and, and off it goes, but you're never going to please everybody. You know, as what Robert says, you know, if it's too high, uh, the shareholder's not happy. If it's too low, the non-shareholder's not happy. And I, I always think the best cases that you can ever do as a single joint expert is when no questions come your way, because you must think, well, I've got it about right and, and everybody's happy. But you're bound to get questions um, and you've just got to deal with them. And I um, always, um, in my responses, uh, say, you know, the questions must be for clarification. That's what the practice direction says. And and you do get some that just go on a fishing expedition and I won't answer them. I won't answer them. I will answer questions that relate to what the work I've done uh, for clarification. But if I get some that aren't, then I simply won't answer them. So... I mean, I, I suppose those questions, Robert, are a prequel to the to the next thing we wanted to talk about, which is Daniels and Walker. Presumably, you one of the purposes of those of those questions is to flag to the judge that there may be an issue with this expert. Well, as as you you and Anita will know, um, the case law basically now is reasonably well established that you're not going to get your own expert, you're not going to succeed in a Daniels and Walker if you haven't first sought clarification from the expert and seen what the expert's reply is. Um, I have, uh, uh, in uh, a case that's still rumbling on, I'm afraid, um, but I had a case where a single joint expert refused to answer that many questions, which I could show to the judge seemed to be reasonable questions of clarification or to explain his rationale, that allowed me uh, to um, get another expert on board. I have, in other cases, used the answers, because sometimes one can see that the way in which the expert, because not all of them take a step back or appear to be as um, um, careful as maybe Peter um, um, is explaining, Sometimes in those circumstances, the actual answers, which appear to be, you know, how dare you ask me kind of answers, allow uh, that to be done. But quite often, um, but one always has to ask the question, Simon, you're quite right. Otherwise, one can't complain about the report. And, uh, um, uh, you know, so it is a, a prelude as well as being an instance. I also use questions to the expert 
if I'm not even going to go down the route of the Daniels of Walker as a way to then say, look, judge, I asked this question. It highlights, and coming back to that Martin and Martin point, it highlights that there is inherent risk within the report. And whilst, judge, I know that you will have regard to the expert, depending on your judge, um, uh, you know, you've got to still have thought to whether this is as cast iron or as watertight uh, evaluation as one might at first glance think. So sometimes the questions can be used to highlight expecting a negative response, highlight an argument you're going to use later. So Peter will sometimes get get from me, though he might not know it's from me or might do. He might say, oh, I can tell this is a Robert question or whatever, but he might. An expert might get a question from me, which is aimed at teasing out a vulnerability within the report, fully expecting the expert to say, no, 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 I'm I'm quite content that my answer is correct or my figure is correct or my dealing with that is correct. But it's a way to use it later down the line. So that's more the tactical approach sometimes, which doesn't always lead to a Daniels and Walker, but still can be useful. Now, again. I'm not saying do it all the time. I'm not saying, you know, one has to be proportionate and one has to be sensible in asking questions. Um, But it does exist as a further way in which to test the evidence and also use it at a later stage. if One is trying to uh, one expects the expert to say, how dare you? But uh, by asking the question, one can try and still use it that the expert is not the judge, which, of course, um, uh, sometimes we have to remind some judges that's the case. It does. I mean, in my experience, I do, I do get single joint expert reports uh, pushed across my desk uh, to look at, uh, whether it be to um, ask questions, but uh, also to say, you know, what are your views and, and, and uh, is there any merit in pursuing a Daniels and Walker application? And, and I think from my experience, um, where the issues uh, were one of the, the parties that's unhappy with it, um, has is if there are issues of judgment, you know, should they use a multiplier of five rather than four, uh, or should they have added this back? I, I suspect that you know there are issues of judgment, and and they're probably not going to find favour uh, with a judge. Well, that, that's more Robert's field than mine. But the ones where I have been involved and uh, and there has been a successful application is where there's been a, a fundamental error by the expert. So uh, an example of one is uh, an expert did a report. Let's say it was a 25% um, minority shareholding, which will seamlessly lead us on to minority discount shortly. And he'd applied a discount of 50%, let's say, to this minority shareholding. He was asked the question as to uh, why he'd done that. And he said, well, you know, that, that that's what you do. Unfortunately, he hadn't looked at the company's articles of association. And uh, there was a clause in within them saying that, any share transfers or share sales, uh, there will be no premium added or no discount, and they will be sold at par value, uh, uh, on a pro rata basis. So he completely overlooked that. And obviously, you know, basically by applying a 50% discount, he'd halve the value of those shares uh, in one fell swoop as a result of not looking at the articles of association. So what happened in that? There were a few other issues as well. So what happened in that? Um, I was appointed for wife. Another expert was appointed for husband. So we ended up with three experts and we had a tri-party meeting of experts to try and thrash this out. He did, thankfully, uh, concede that um, there was a clause in the Articles of Association. So um, 
you know, from that small piece of work almost or looking at it, um, the value of that 25% shareholding doubled um, as a result. Yeah, there will sometimes be. I mean, I would, I'd hope your listeners are of a sufficient uh, understanding to actually say, hold on a minute, I'm sure, you know, always have a look. At first instance, even if it's not being disclosed, and let's roll this back to the very beginning, go on company's house and look at the accounts. Now, there'll be abbreviated accounts, so you won't have the details that one needs, but you'll get a feel for the business and feel what's going on in it. And have a look at the articles, because if it's being said a minority discount should apply and the articles preclude that, then you know that that can't be argued and you know that the expert has missed that. And I'm, su- I'm surprised an expert would, but it, these things do happen. So, but sometimes there will also, I have, you know, successfully challenged an expert. The two best ways to do it is there appears to be a factual assumption or a factual basis which your client can say, hold on, that's wrong. And when you point that out to the expert on occasion, and again, it is rare, but on occasion, that's given rise to an amendment. Or there can be the other way of doing it, as as Peter suggested, is you bring somebody else on board. If you feel it's going to be cost effective and you are seriously trying to challenge, because in due course, that person, if they have sufficient qualification, can then be your Daniels and Walker. So it's a cost effective um, way to introduce them. But if actually the answer to that person's questions uh, is an amendment, then you may not need to make the Daniels and Walker. Um, but again, you know, your listeners would have to think about whether it's proportionate and cost effective to, to go down that route. But at those, I always say the best way to challenge an expert with an expert, but, um, or with an expert counsel, of course. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, again, I, I, get, I, we can edit that I, last I, comment out. <laughs> oh, no, I, uh, we're keeping that in. I absolutely agree. With that. Uh, wisest thing you said, Robert. Wisest thing you said. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so, so we touched a bit on minority uh, discounts, and perhaps you could tell us when it is they should apply, and we shouldn't be concerned. Well, um, it's maybe easier to answer the question by saying when does a quasi partnership apply? Because strictly speaking, every limited company, because of its structure, if somebody holds less than. 100%, I mean, obviously, the sliding scales, but definitely if they've got less than 75%, so they don't have control, uh, anything 75% and above, the discounts are going to be uh, modest in any event because, you know, it doesn't really make a difference. But where one has a situation where there isn't um, a control, then theoretically, a minority discount should always apply because it's a private limited company and one has to, Therefore, look at the shares held by the person and what's their control. Where that doesn't apply is going to be in instances of quasi-partnership. And um, none of us are going to be old enough to have been around when Westbourne Galleries or Ibrahimian Westbourne Galleries was decided. Albeit, I did for a while live on Denby Road, which used to corner onto Westbourne Galleries. And when I went for a curry, uh, I'd actually walk past where the building once was. But that was in my University in my accountancy days back in in London, uh, and obviously the other well-known cases, the Precision Bellows, and what they look at is you know how the shares were held, were they held in a quasi uh, partnership, you know, was the connection between uh, before 
they got together. Is there an expectation that the shareholders will work within the business? And is there a restriction on the transfer of the shares? They are the three obvious markers, and it doesn't have to be all three. But actually, uh, and again, it's pretty well established. Um, you've got uh, GMG, but we had Mostyn more recently. I'm going to have to come back to you with the name of the case. I say recently, two years ago. You know, saying, look, I'm looking at this. This is the reality. If it's a family business, it's going to be obvious. And the only reason a minority discount wouldn't be applied is where uh, or would be applied where it's a quasar partnership is where the judge thinks, oh, it, uh, it doesn't fit into what I want to do. So they choose not to uh, apply it, but um, or they choose to apply it. But I, w- I would say that, you know, those are the kind of factors that exist in, in whether there there is uh, a quasi partnership. And the, some experts, not all, some will comment on it. Some will say, it's not for me whatsoever. I'm not averse to an expert saying, I've got X number of years, 30 years, 40 years, 20 years, whatever it might be, lots of experience. And I am saying that for the, these reasons, using the kind of bird precision bellows checklist, it appears that there is a quasi-partnership here, but I accept it's a matter for the judge. That's going to make the person who's trying to argue against it their job more difficult. But at the end of the day, there's no harm in an expert saying, I'm identifying these. Equally, if an expert doesn't feel comfortable in saying that, it doesn't matter as long as the advocate uh, and the legal team are able to identify where a quasi-partnership exists. Because again, the, the valuer has got to look at it. But I've always thought within evaluation, I don't know whether it's for the expert to start getting into elements of risk, etc., which is more for the judge to some extent, though the expert, I think, should identify where risk exists in a business because they're going to factor that in, the, in their valuation. But I definitely think if, if an expert saying this is the value of the shares, then if if they were actually dealing with an uh, an arm's length third party purchaser and seller, then if the purchaser was, purchaser was saying, well, I, I, you know, I'm not going to pay that much because you don't owe enough shares. I know it's a slightly false scenario because in that scenario, they wouldn't be part of the quasi partnership. But if one is putting that to one side and looking at it, it's fair for an expert to say, but I identify this point and the judge will have to make a decision on it. And I am noting this, that, and the other. But equally, some experts would say, well, no, 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 I'll value it. I will say what the discount would be, but I am not going to say whether it's a quasi-partnership or, or whether it should be applied. I'll just say it's for the judge to look at. Mm-hmm. I still think an expert should flag up what the discount should be and leave it then, at the very least, then for the parties then to litigate whether that is or isn't uh, applicable. If I've answered the question, I think I hope I have, but there it is. Yeah, I mean, from my end as an expert, the quasi partnership issue in in some ways, and uh, well, Robert was there as well. But I was lucky enough uh, last year to speak at the I think it's called not the not the Jordan's financial remedy uh, seminar. I did the one up in Newcastle, and um, there was one in York. In the, I think it was in the summertime, and uh, I had the uh, rather dubious honour of following Mister Justice Mostyn as the speaker. <laughs> but I'd spoken to him. Uh, I spoke to him for uh, a little bit before we both went on. And, and about this issue, and I think the case Robert might be uh, wants to refer to is, is it Clark and Clark. 
And his view is, well, quasi-partnerships are all very interesting, but actually in reality, um, not that material to uh, to the judgments I make, because really what I look at is if you've only got a handful of shareholders, like two, three, four, whatever it might be, and, and not husband and wife, and maybe come on to that, is would they actually, if they sold the business, act in concert? So really all that would ever happen is uh, the two or three of them, if the business was ever going to be sold, they'd sell it together, lock, stock and barrel, or if one of them wanted to retire and wanted out, he'd sell it to the other shareholders. And by doing that, you know, they've, they've worked together for uh, for many years. Uh, would they, in reality, discount those shares as a result? And his view seems to be, no, they wouldn't. Um, they'd act in concert. And I think certainly um, where you see a lot of business structures where, let's say, husband might have 51%, wife 49 or husband 75.1% and wife 249 I think it's rare that the court would say they aren't quasi-partnerships because um, most of the time uh, the wife is, uh, well, not most of the time, but, you know, the wife is often a shareholder purely for tax reasons so that they can pay dividends, utilise her personal allowances, and, and that's how it is. Um, so I'm very much in the uh, latter um, category of, I was, won't really comment as to whether or not it's a quasi-partnership. And the reason for that being that I've just been parachuted in to, uh, as a single joint expert to value that business. I don't know from from the time I've been involved in this, the, the day-to-day workings of the business, uh, how it operates. You know, I, I wouldn't, I, you, you'd get an overview from the directors when, when you ask the questions, but you wouldn't know how it operated day-to-day. The company accountant would because they might have been acting for it for donkey's years and they go out on site and they advise them uh, on their um, business strategy and everything else. But um, I do uh, say, well, um, if it's found to be, there's no discount or obviously if it's something in the articles of association or a shareholders agreement to that effect, I wouldn't. But I will also say, and if the court does find um, a minority discount should apply, these are the range of um, percentages that, that they, they should apply. Uh, and that. But I, I, th- I think it's right to do that rather than just say, uh, no, in my view, it's a, it's a QP because at the end of the day, it's, it's a legal matter. I mean, I'm not inviting experts to start going into that realm unnecessarily. I'm merely saying that I don't have a difficulty with them highlighting the features that might assist in identifying what they are. But practitioners who are listening to this need to be thoughtful as to the factors that exist one way or another. Um, You know, if it is, I mean, the, the business Peter's just described would probably fit into a close personal relationship that was born out of of, you know, uh, a working together kind of strategy, which is one of the kind of features that I outlined in in Ibrahimi uh, uh, and in, in both Precision Bellows. And obviously, if the wife or the husband's going to buy the other party's shares, and clearly there's not going to be a discount because they are acquiring the whole of the business. But there will still be businesses where um, there might be a feature that looks like it's a quasi-partnership. They may get on very well. They may be the godfather of the other family's children or whatever other kind of connection, but um, they run the business very much on business terms. There's no withdrawal of cash to help somebody out or not, and there's sometimes kind of features that would lead to a quasi-partnership assumption. But if a business is run on strict business terms, no harm in you being best mates with your business partner, uh, but if they own 50% of the shares equally – and there's no way they uh, would work otherwise. 
and somebody is being required to sell their shares or have a value, then it may still be a court might have some sympathy with, look, if you're treating this as being realised now, in the same way you're treating the house is going to be sold now, even if it's not, then it might be fair for a judge to apply some kind of discount, even if it's not the full discount. And of course, there are different, yet again, helpfully, different uh, percentages of discount. I always use for myself fact sheet 167 or whatever it's called from the ACCA. But I know there are other um, uh, discount tables that can be applied, which are more or less very similar, but not quite the same. But a judge might say, I'm going to apply to some extent. And so it doesn't mean even if even if it's not 100 percent applied, it should be completely disregarded. But that brings us back into that. We're moving into the Martin again risk or is there a discount? And for different reasons, control can be part of it as well as liquidity. Because let's not forget, even in a quasi partnership scenario, potentially, if the owner requires 50 percent owner, requires the other person to agree to cash being drawn, then they don't have control. And if the other person says, I'm not letting you do it, if we're going to sell the business, that's fine, but we're not selling the business and I'm not letting you have 200 grand out unless I can have 200 grand. We've only got 300 grand in there, so I'm sorry, I'm not letting you do it. Well, even that still has got to be factored in because Martin and Martin talks not just about risk but also about liquidity. Um, you know, I think I think um, co-ownership does create complications that the practitioner needs to bear in mind, and it can be a bit of a minefield. But uh, you know, it it is possible still to get to the other side of it and get the result one wants. You've ended on a on on a point there to do with liquidity, which is something it would be interesting to ask. Peter about as well that that that's an important feature presumably of the reports that you do because it's all very well knowing what the business is worth but if it isn't going to be sold is is the cash in the business or is the business able to raise cash in order to buy out the other party's um, national interest in it yeah i mean a term i've used in, in many a single joint expert report uh, this business is asset rich but cash poor farms great example uh, of it um again um businesses that have a, a lot of money tied up you know property developments well you know, all the assets but that you're only going to realize and unravel the cash that's tied up in those when they're sold in however many years it is to take them to develop so um, it is difficult and um you know i i would say um of all the sje reports i do it's probably a 50-50 split between those that do have um ample cash sat within them to uh, fund a settlement one way or another, however they extract it. But many, whilst they may well have significant value, the actual liquidity within them is uh, is quite poor. And then I leave that to the barristers to try and sort something out when they're negotiating. Uh, um, an interesting point that I just want to mention, of course, is when Peter quite rightly does his reports or another expert does their report, they will say, and this is the net value of the shares because of capital gains tax, Let's not forget, and it might be a little bit of a um, a voice in the dark by himself, as Mostyn was prone to be, but let's not forget first insisted decision in Martin, WM and, and uh, HM in 2017, when he decided to say, look, this business isn't going to be sold, and Mr. Martin is going to have to extract this amount of cash out, and I'm now going to take income tax into account, because... 
we often come across a situation where the only way in which the value can be drawn or provided is actually by a series of lump sums or lump sum by instalment. And let's not go into Mostyn's view about that because that one I don't agree with him, but there we are. But I much prefer Hamilton, uh, the decision in Hamilton. But the fact of the matter is it's going to have to be drawn over a period of time. Well, in that instance, firstly, you've got to structure it correctly. But should you not then take income tax into account? Because if you're drawing out to actually pay a capital sum, you're drawing it from profit. You, this isn't. And even if it's cash sitting there, it, is it a fair question to raise that hold on, the owner of the shares is not going to just be getting the net value and selling it. They're actually going to be drawing two or three or 400 or half a million or whatever it might be out, more than that on instances. Or over time, if it's a multi-million pound settlement and the value isn't there, then if they've got income tax to be taken into account, is it a fair question to raise, as was raised by Mostyn in WM and HM, you know, do that? Do we need to have some regard to that? Remember, of course, then you can't have it, your cake and eat it. You can't then still have the CGT knocked off as well, but because um, you're not then being treated that way. But that's an interesting point. The only other way then to deal with liquidity uh, is, of course, it has to be over a period of time. And the one area where uh, Austin's decision in Martin was uh, successfully criticised was he gave too short a timescale for the husband to pay the lump sum. And uh, that's where Lord Justice Moylan or the Court of Appeal decided to change the decision at first instance. The report can, from the expert, can help in that. But of course, sometimes the we would maybe have to ask the experts to comment on not just the ability to draw capital now, but in the foreseeable future. But the answer to that may in itself flow from the fact that if the experts come to the view that the uh, multiple can the profit figure, the EBITDA figure is sufficiently high that and the profit therefore to be multiplied is such, then one could say um then there appears to be sufficient uh funds going forward from the EBITDA figure to satisfy uh, a series of payments or lumps and by instalments. But um I just thought I'd mention that at that stage because it's sometimes something that if one wants to be a bit naughty we can you can set a judge's head into explode mode by saying, oh, well, what about the income tax? All right, I'm going to finish it off unless either of you two have a golden nugget that you want to say before we, before. Oh, I, I hope it's been useful. Um, I think we've kind of covered uh, most of the topics I think you wanted to get into without going into how to use reports and all the rest of it, which is a whole complete other podcast and three no doubt so uh, there it is so i hope it's been helpful it's been a pleasure to be on on board thank you yeah i absolutely agree with robert uh thank you for the invitation i uh, really enjoyed it uh nice to uh, nice to have a chat with everybody i hope they found something in there somewhere that's useful to their everyday uh working life um but no no not really any smoking gun or, or golden nugget just uh, treat things yeah yeah i think certainly from um my work I, I think you've just got to have a, a healthy dose of skepticism about a lot of the things that cross my desk so uh, if, if there is anybody uh who uh in the legal profession who does like looking at accounts and i know there are a few i i would say um you know don't uh don't believe everything you read that's that's fantastic thank you both i definitely want to get myself a brief 
up north so that I can see the two of you and be exposed to this level of enthusiasm about business accounts again. Thank you very much.